holy God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So, tiny quiz, just a little one. Um, Think you can handle it. I want everyone who has never failed at anything ever in your lives to change your mute status. If you are muted, unmute yourself. If you are unmuted, you know, just show us, you know, show us you've never failed. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Trick question, of course. Everyone fails. Obviously. We all know that. I mean, the the way that I was watching you all laugh at that very question. We all know that to be human is to screw up from time to time. Everyone misses the mark. Everyone bites off a little more than they can chew. Everyone, I, I don't think there's a single person here who is going to email me afterwards and be like, you know, I think you were wrong in that sermon where you said that. Pretty sure I'm not going to get that Email that phone call later today. One of those rare moments when one can make a statement in a sermon and be absolutely sure that no one's gonna argue. It's a great feeling. Amy, do you, like, hang on to that one. We all know that failure is just, it's part of the human condition, right? And we can say that in this moment. We can even smile as we say it. In this situation where our in our solidarity, in our communal acknowledgement of our propensity to screw up, our propensity to fail, we don't feel any shame around that, right? Oh, yeah, every human does this, not a big deal, it's going to happen, fine. And yet, when it comes to facing a specific situation, when it comes to that moment where we, any one of us, has to admit that we failed, right here, right now, In this situation, I just screwed that up. I didn't do what I said I would. Or I screwed up the plans and now we can't go have fun. Or I was trying to do the right thing, but I totally went about it the wrong way. When the failure is specific and individual and immediate, it can become, it often becomes shame. Almost in the space of a heartbeat. And of course, when we feel shame, we tend to hide it behind anger and defensiveness and deflection because admitting that we actually have failed in that moment is way too painful, way too vulnerable, way, way too scary. It's a strange dichotomy, isn't it? In this book that I've been working out of the past couple weeks and will continue to do so through the rest of this sermon series, I was really intrigued when I saw failure as a faith practice. It's one of the chapters. Failure? Really? Okay. And so I read the chapter and I was like, this is going to be amazing. And I was intrigued to find that the majority of the chapter was not so much about failure per se, as it was about shame and resilience. Because when we talk about failure... It's not the failures that we expect to happen. When we talk about, you know, the times we have failed, it's not about 
you know, that one time I thought I could learn German in a week. I never thought I could learn German in a week. And I totally set myself up to fail because no one can learn German in a week. It's not an easy language. And that's a lot of words to memorize. And it's an unrealistic goal. So you fail at something that unrealistic and you feel no shame. You just kind of feel like, that was silly. Why would I even set that myself up for that? When we talk about failure, when I bring up the subject and your minds travel back to that one time, that really big one, that one that still kind of sticks in your craw, that one, it's about the times when our abilities and our sense of self aren't in alignment. Actually, that, right? It's the times when our inner voice tells us that we should have been able to do something, should have known better, should be more perfect, should be less fallible than any human ever, ever could be, ever has been, ever will be. The chapter wasn't so much about failure as about our shame at having our humanity revealed. Our shame at having to admit that we aren't, in fact, better than the people around us. And it made me wonder, why do we not want to admit that we are human? Why does failure bring shame when we're all perfectly aware and willing to say, as we did at the beginning of this, of this time together, that this is just a very normal experience that we all will go through multiple times throughout our lives? Why does failure give us such a sense of shame when we read our scripture lesson and see, oh, hey, look, the disciples failed. They failed pretty epically in this particular moment. They failed in the scripture lesson today because this happens after they got sent out by Jesus to heal and to cast out demons. They've already done this. They know how to do this. This is not a new concept to them. Which, just for the record, suggests that it not the point of the story really it's not about the demon per se or their ability to cast out demons in general it is about their failure to see and to call on god who was incarnate in their daily lives walking around with them in the person of jesus because they were too caught up in their own hubris in their insistence on self-reliance and so their failure was in forgetting that it is faith and not human ability that it is God working through us and not our own capacities that will bring about the healing of the world. Mark's disciples fail regularly. There is a reason that we call this one the stupid disciple gospel. They failed in the story right before the scripture lesson we read this morning, when Peter, faced with the transfigured Christ, wanted to hold the moment, box it up, and keep it because he didn't trust that his heart could hold that truth. And they will fail again a couple verses later in the story that will follow this one, when they will start arguing over who is the greatest, who can do all that Jesus knows he must do. They fail in their hubris and in their humanity and in their lack of understanding because what Jesus is trying to tell them about himself and about the church and about the gospel in the world, it is all just way too big and way too scary and so far outside of what they know because they are humans and so, like humans, they fail. Yay! And somehow we read these lessons and we don't go, oh, thank heaven they failed too. 
we read these scripture lessons, these moments where the disciples understand and the moments where they mess up and we go, oh, did you not understand that? I understood that. We read stories like this one, not as examples of grace extended even unto us fallible humans, but we read it as though we are smarter somehow. We have more knowledge. We have more spirituality than those poor disciples way back in the day. We somehow find it embarrassing to admit that we're just like they are which means that we're just like the people that Jesus called to follow him in the first place. We're just like the people who built the church that we now embody. Hmm. Failure is a part of the gospel. So why are we ashamed by it? Shame arises within us because we end up having an experience that goes against our internal narrative of who we are and how the world should work in relation to us. Note that word should. That will always come back where shame is involved. Humans are heavily reliant on pattern and consistency. We feel like we need to know how things work in order to have a sense of control over ourselves and our lives. And anything that makes us wonder whether we are who we thought we were, will throw the entire system out of whack. And so we engage in ideas like the old bootstraps narrative. You know, you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll be fine. We engage in ideas like that, that hard work, our actions, our choices, our control, have a major bearing on our successes and our failures. Because if we didn't, then the whole world would feel kind of random and terrifying. But the flip side of our need for control comes when we fail, where we think we should be able to succeed. Hey, there was should again. Because that control, that needed stability, gets called into question, and it calls all of our understandings of the world and our place in it into a space of uncertainty, and that makes our stomachs churn. Our need to believe that our actions our choices, the things that we actually have control over, enable our successes, suggests as well that our failures are our direct fault. It suggests that if we fail, it's because there's something wrong with us, because we didn't do enough, we weren't enough. It makes failure the sign of an individual moral issue rather than a normal part of the human condition. It makes us wrong when we fail, blamable when we fail. I wonder what the gospel has to say about that. I don't know if any of you saw the NBC show The Good Place when it was on, oh, probably a couple years ago. It's on Netflix, I think, at this point, or Peacock TV or whatever. They all split apart. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's a really good show. Because it is this strange combination of a sitcom that actually makes the study of ethics interesting and funny. I didn't think that was possible, but there you go. You learn about Immanuel Kant and you laugh at the same time. Those shouldn't happen, but they do. And there's this one character in the show named Jason Mendoza. 
in the early part of the show, it seems like he just functions as comic relief. You know how sitcoms always have the sort of tropey, you know, here's the romantic lead and then here's the comic relief and then, yeah. He's the comic relief. He's a really clueless buddy who at first seems always cheerful because he is simply clueless. But as the show goes on and gets really complex, he finds himself in a moment of having to reflect on the fact that he has been a continual failure throughout his life, not because of any internal problems, but because the system failed him first. Because the choices that we are given in this life are not always good ones. As you see more of Jason's life poured out in the show, you see how his choices were often between two paths that both of them inevitably could only lead to failure. And you begin to understand that his serenity might well come not from cluelessness, but from the knowledge that those failures were not his to own. That failing in a school with no books and unhealthy buildings. That failing at finding a job without an education. That failing at being there for your kids or the people who are depending on you when you need to work two to three jobs just to keep a roof over their heads. These aren't failures that depend on us. And you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you cannot afford boots. It's not always up to us. And that's not a pleasant thought when we want the world to be stable and predictable and safe. But the fact that it's not always up to us, that we cannot magically make a choice that keeps everything safe, we cannot magically make a choice that keeps us from ever failing again, should take so much of our shame away from the very concept of what it means to fail. Because no matter what the world says to us, Seeing successes and failures as indicative of morality and ethics, seeing failure as shameful or even sinful, flies in the face of all that the gospel teaches. Because even when Jesus is tired and frustrated, even when Jesus is walking back down the mountain after this transfiguration experience that in addition to being really cool was probably absolutely exhausting, even when Jesus is at his... Really, I'm most done. He does not question the worthiness of these followers to be disciples when they are unable to cast out a demon. He vents a little frustration. But then he teaches them how to do better next time. When they ask how they could have done it right, he tells them. He believes that they could still learn. Because that's the gospel. It's not the expectation that we will get it right the first time every single time. But it is the possibility that we can learn from our mistakes and do better the following time. The point of the gospels is not to give us some key to perfection. It is to show us the power of grace. The divine compassion that doesn't need us to do it right the first time, that invites us to learn and to grow and to try again and again and again and again and as often as we need to. Because we can always grow a little more. The power of grace is the promise that even the disciples who couldn't get anything 
right, who couldn't even stay with Jesus when he was crucified, that the disciples, those people who couldn't cast out a demon, are still the beginning of the church that we continue to embody. I hear sometimes about how the church stands in contrast to the world. And now that's a kind of an evangelical point of view. Um, but there's a call for us in that concept, for us on the more progressive side as well. Because the world will tell us that we are only worth our productivity. We're only as good as our salaries, our houses, our nice cars, or our successful, well-behaved, college-bound children. And the church has the ability in that moment to stand up and say, no, we are worthy as we are without condition. The world tells us that certain bodies are correct and other bodies are suspicious. Other bodies must be controlled and changed and shamed. And the church has the opportunity to stand up and say, no, no, no. The incarnate God loves all bodies and the image of God is reflected in all bodies and no one needs to change who they are to be worthy in the eyes of God. The world tells us that those who don't succeed in the ways that the world considers success, which is already a little... The world will tell us that those people who don't succeed are lazy or spoiled or shameful. The world tells us that we can control our destinies, be successful by praying harder, working longer, losing weight, fitting in, picking the correct essential oil. And the church has an opportunity to stand up and say, yo, essential oils are lovely, don't get us wrong, but failure isn't bad either. Fail hard, fail often, and you're still a disciple. You're still worthy of grace. You're still beloved by God. The church has the opportunity to stand up against all of the ways that the world tries to put us down and shame us, and we would be better off if we could do that. For despite our many human failures, the church is called to be the place where perfection isn't required and failure isn't shamed the church is called to be the place where grace abounds and compassion becomes the hallmark of our community. Because if the church could be a community that allows us as humans to fail without shame, that allows us to be a people who see failure as the entry point of grace, then we become a community that is grounded in compassion rather than fear. When we become a community that risks itself, that risks failure in order to love our neighbor, in order to embody the grace of God, in order to seek the healing of the world, then we become a community that defies the shame that the world would inflict upon us, the shame that isolates us and tell us that our failures make us unworthy and unlovable. When we become a community that meets failure with grace, then we become the first sparks of the kingdom. We become the first wisps of God's dream for all of us, which was never a dream of perfection, but a dream of peace, a dream of love made manifest in creation. When we become a community, a church that risks itself, that risks failing, we become a community of disciples, 
a continuing incarnation of Christ, living into the love that God poured out into this world, learning and growing and becoming the church that we have always had the potential to be if only we weren't so afraid that we might fail at it. God did not create us to be God. And God did not wait until we were perfect to be in covenant with us, to call us into relationships with one another, to call us into a community that reflects the love of God among the individuals gathered within it. God did not create us to be God, but to believe in the potential that we can yet embody. To believe that we can fail and it will be okay. Because to believe that failure is a flaw that keeps us from God is to worship our humanity and to live in a hubris that separates us from the one who created us and knows us entirely. To believe that failure is a flaw is a sin. For it breaks apart the bonds hold us together. But we worship a God who knows perfectly well that we will fail. We might even fail as often as the disciples did. Because while we knew their story, we still don't know our own. And so we'll fail at it, just like they did. But we worship a God who understands that failure is just a part of being human, and who doesn't hold it against us, but who simply asks us, to own our mistakes and try again. To learn, to grow, to fail, to adapt. We worship a God who doesn't shame us for our failures, but looks on us with compassion and grace and asks us to show forth that same compassion to those who are just as human as we are. Because God did not create us to be God but to be community such that we show God's love throughout this creation. And God knows we will fail because we cannot deny our humanity. But failing into grace is the only success that God has ever asked of us. Failing such that we grow, such that we learn compassion, such that we hold our common humanity with tenderness and God's mercy with thanksgiving. We worship a God who asks only that we fail in such a way that love abounds and the kingdom of God emerges from the cracks in our desire for perfection. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>